Welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And we happen to be coming to you today from Florida, Miami, Florida, as a matter of fact. And we're talking to the director of the Florida Division of Emergency Management, Mr. Jared Moskowitz. Before taking over as the director of FDEN, Mr. Moskowitz was a state legislator. And before that, a member of the city council in Parkland. He's also in charge of executing Florida's COVID-19 response. And I am so proud to have him on our Let's Be Blunt podcast today. Jared, thanks so much for being here, sir. Uh, Montel, thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I know you have been working. Are you, are you coming to me right now from the command center? Yeah, so we're, we're in the command center. You can see, obviously, the floor of the EOC uh, behind me. Absolutely. You know, let's talk a little bit about it, because I think a lot of people want to know, especially Florida is one of the largest states, and, you know, you're hearing missed messages about whether or not we're still on the slope going up, slope going down, in the middle. Where are we at right now, sir? Sure. No, that's that's a great question. And and, and here in the state of Florida, right, we're, we're used to having to deal with uh, spaghetti models and, you know, one model takes the, the, the storm into the Atlantic, one takes it over Florida, one takes it uh, into the Gulf of Mexico. So we're, we're used to that. We're also used to models changing on us. You know, we go to we wake we go to bed and and we think it's one thing we wake up and it's a completely it's a completely different deal. And so uh, we obviously are following the IHME model here. Uh, that's the Washington University model uh, that uh, the White House has also uh, have been using. And so, uh, you know, there's been some changes in that model over the last couple of days. Uh, just uh, four days ago, that model said we would peak on May 4th. Uh, and then uh, just, just, like I, just like I said, we went to bed, we woke up the next morning, and all of a sudden uh, the model said that we would peak on April 21st. Dr. Fauci explains that is that as new data comes in and they put it in the model, uh, the model changes based on the data it has to do with the, the the model just being a projection. And so right now we seem to be leveling. We seem to be seeing that curve, uh, but we are not yet at our peak. Our peak is still projected to be April 21st. So next week will be worse uh, than this week. Uh, and so as we get to April 21st, we then will plateau for a period of time. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, obviously the devastating news uh, is that deaths will lag hospitalizations. Uh, and so af even after we peak on April 21st, uh, we should see an increase uh, in, in deaths uh, around the state of Florida, something that's going to be extremely hard. We're watching, obviously, uh, New York, New Jersey uh, go through that. And while our numbers will not be anywhere comparable to theirs, uh, it's still going to be devastating, uh, nonetheless, to communities around the state. And what are we looking at as a number right now? What do we, we call the number for the total number of cases that have been identified so far in the state of Florida? Sure. So I think we're approaching about 16,000 cases right now uh, in the state of Florida. And so uh, we seem to be uh, on a steady stream, obviously, of adding about the same amount of cases uh, every single solitary day. Uh, South Florida, Dade County, Broward County, Palm Beach County, those three counties are 60% uh, of the cases uh, around the state. After that, you're talking about Orange County, Hillsborough County, uh, or, or our two other uh, large counties uh, with cases, but nowhere near what we're seeing uh, in South Florida, uh, with Miami-Dade you know, far alone being, uh, being the county with the most amount of cases and the highest positivity rate. Uh, we're seeing, obviously, the folks that we test, uh, that the positivity rate of those folks in Miami-Dade is higher uh, than other places. And uh, that positivity rate is uh, slightly increasing uh, in, in Miami-Dade, where in other counties we're seeing it, it level off. And, and that's not specific to Miami-Dade. That's exactly what we're seeing, obviously, in New York City, in Detroit, in New Orleans, uh, you know, in Chicago, in our major cities 
uh, around the country. It just has to do with, you know, density and transportation and multi-generational families living under, uh, under one roof. And so, uh, you know, these are the things that, you know, are, are happening in Miami-Dade. The mayor's done a great job down there. Uh, you know, we have obviously all the social distancing, safer at home orders uh, in place. And we're, we're seeing that those mitigation measures are, are working. Uh, but obviously, uh, we need people to still be vigilant. Uh, we don't want people uh, to get a false sense of security just because we say we see things leveling off and that we, we feel good about our hospital capacity, uh, not just in Dade County, but, but around the state. We feel good about our ventilator capacity. Uh, we feel good based on what the models are saying we're going to need and, and what we actually have. Uh, right now, you know, in Dade County, about 50% of our hospital beds are empty. Uh, and that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, that shows you that uh, decompressing all these hospitals, uh, like we know how to do in the state of Florida because of hurricanes, and we know how to do them quickly. These hospitals did a great job getting those elective surgeries uh, uh, out and, and decompressing. And so we, we really only saw a, a net gain of a couple of dozen hospitalizations uh, in, in Dade County uh, from yesterday to today. So, uh, you know, we continue to watch that. Again, as Dr. Fauci said, as new data comes in, the models can change. So we're watching that, uh, uh, you know, obviously very uh, intently, but, you know, we'll hopefully the models change for the better. And I know we, we have employed all of the mitigation techniques here. One of them being, you know, I think the, did not the governor put out a call that people, when they go outside of their home, if, they, if they're going to the grocery store and other places, try to wear masks and gloves? Is that something that you think right now we should all be thinking about? Yeah, no, so the CDC guidance on, on masks for the public uh, is that it, it's optional. Uh, they're recommending them, but it's not, it's not mandatory. And uh, the recommendation uh, isn't necessarily an N95 mask that you see in, in hospitals and on, on the front lines. Uh, it can be a surgical mask. It could also be a cloth mask. Uh, at the end of the day, you can go to the grocery store uh, with a homemade mask, uh, a cloth mask, a scarf, a bandana, just something to, to cover, obviously, your, your mouth and nose, if, that, if you so choose. But it is, it is optional. We are not putting any guidance at this standpoint. Uh, the state isn't making it mandatory. Uh, there are some cities and counties that have the flexibility, uh, if they want to, by executive order or by ordinance uh, in, uh, in those localities, that if they wanted to do so, uh, they could. Obviously, you know, there's some concern in some uh, of the more fiscally constrained areas and some of our urban centers uh, where people uh, might not have access to masks. You know, we don't want to see people being denied access to grocery stores because, uh, you know, they didn't have a face covering. And so, you know, we want to make sure that we're working through that, we're messaging, we're communicating. And so, you know, look, the CDC recommends it. It's optional, uh, but we'll leave that up to, you know, up to Floridians, whether or not they decide they want to wear a mask when they go out. I got to tell you, I think I and my wife, you know, we've been practicing, you know, first of all, we were staying at home. I'm not, I have a pre-existing condition, so I don't want to get involved or get out so that I get next to somebody who might inadvertently, you know, contaminate me. I have MS and I don't want to be out in public. But when I go out and I'm going out every evening, you know, at 8 o'clock when the temperature goes down to just get a nice physical walk in so I can do some exercise. But I'm wearing a mask in my elevators and I'm wearing gloves in my elevators, making sure that when I touch things, you know, I'm touching them with a glove rather than with my bare hands. And, you know, I've I noticed that it's kind of strange still that you know, the majority of people out there aren't doing that. And that throws me a little bit because I think I'd like to see the messaging be stronger to say, look, you know what, if we know that things like this could help mitigate the spread, we all got to participate to be in this together. 
Yeah, no, and I, I, I listen. I, I, I agree with you. I think the the struggle right now is is that obviously we all know that there are shortages of PPE all across the country. Uh, that's not breaking news. Uh, and so I, I think what what uh, CDC and and a lot of the states are trying to balance is to make sure that if we tell everybody they must wear gloves and they what must wear masks, we don't want uh, all of a sudden gloves and surgical masks to disappear even further and that to become even more limited and that we can't get those to the front lines to our folks uh, in the hospitals, to our doctors, our nurses, our physician assistants, all the maintenance workers, all the people, you know, the real heroes of this, our first responders, our police officers, firefighters, the folks working in nursing homes and, and ALFs and in home health care. Uh, and so I think, I mean, if we're just being honest and blunt, I think that's probably the balance is that, you know, if, if we tell everybody in the country, go buy a surgical mask, then that will uh, make things even uh, more constricted than they are getting the PPE to the front lines. So for, for people like yourself who are out here on the front line trying to keep us all safe, I know you have, what, three small children at home or two small children at home? Yeah, I got, I got two kids. I got two boys, a six-year-old and a three-year-old. Barely getting the chance to see them, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I saw them for, you know, two minutes when we opened up the Palm Beach testing site and another two minutes when we opened up the Miami testing site because my, my family lives in, in Broward County. I'm up here and obviously in, in Tallahassee and Leon County. It's about six and a half hours away. So I, I got to go home for the first time uh, for, for dinner for the first night of, of Passover, actually. Uh, and so, you know, I, I saw them for, for about four hours before they went to bed and then I saw them in the morning and then, then, I, then obviously I left. But uh, look, that's what I signed up for. Uh, you know, I, you know, I, I got a, you know, a lot of people like to give me uh, credit for, for what I'm doing, but I couldn't do that obviously with my, my wife holding the house down with the kids. And so I got to thank her uh, for everything uh, she's doing. Uh, you know, having, having two boys is a lot of work, uh, 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 by itself, having two boys at home with no school, uh, for the last five weeks is, uh, is a tremendous, uh, tremendous amount of work. I don't know which, one I'd rather be doing at home with them for five weeks or doing this, but, but I definitely miss them. And, you know, I mean, we're just, just listening to the way you're speaking about that. You're speaking pretty much for all the first responders and all those that are out there on the front line, because there are lots of families that are nurses and doctors and people who are out there working every day to keep us safe, who don't get to spend any time with their own family and are afraid to go to their own family because they may have been in contact with somebody who has this illness. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not in a hospital, but my wife and I had to talk about that. We talked about, obviously, you know, I've been out and about, uh, you know, obviously being the director of emergency management. Uh, you know, I'm around more people uh, during the day than obviously she is. And so we wanted to make sure that, you know, when I came and saw them, that that we felt that, that you know, that I wasn't compromising them uh, or vice versa, uh, because obviously we know kids could be uh, asymptomatic. And so, you know, th these are decisions that, uh, you know, our doctors and our nurses, our folks that work in hospitals, our police officers, our firefighters, uh, our folks that work in cities and counties, state employees have to make, uh, you know, on, on an everyday basis. I see the nurses, you know, online struggling with the fact that, you know, they come home to be with their kids and they're worried that they're bringing their work home with them. Uh, and by that, I mean, potentially COVID-19. Um, and, and so, look, that's why we've tried to expand rapid testing dramatically in the state. Uh, you know, we, we've helped uh, the governor's been talking to the White House about, you know, getting those Abbott laboratory tests here. We had 10 hospitals that got those tests. Uh, originally, we got 20 more of those machines that were just recently delivered to us that were getting out to uh, more hospitals and to community uh, centers uh, to do testing uh, in specific areas because that really 
you know, is a game changer. If we can get more and more of those, because you can find out if you're positive or negative uh, in somewhere between five and 15 minutes. And so, you know, you know, the day the, the, the days of having to wait, you know, five or six days for results, we're hoping in the coming weeks that, you know, there'll be more and more of these rapid tests available because that really is what will give that nurse uh, or that doctor, that first responder, that here on the front line, that's what will give them uh, that comfort uh, that before they walk in their door and they're with their, their loved one and their kids that uh, they're not bringing anything home with them. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. And, you know, when you talk about the rapid testing, that requires some additional materials and additional, you know, supplies to be able to even conduct these tests. Talk a little bit about the difficulty you've had with being the head of the response for the state of Florida of getting the proper amount of equipment, meaning everything from PPE to even the swabs for these tests. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I've been well on the record on that. And so I can, I'll, talk, I'll dialogue a little bit of, of, of the journey. And this is not just what's going on in Florida. I talked to my count, counterparts in California, uh, New York, other, other states. It's, it's the same uh, in every single solitary state around, around the country. And that is that at the end of the day, <clears throat> the demand uh, exceeded the supply. Uh, that's obviously obvious. Uh, a lot of this stuff is made... Uh, in China. It's made not in this country. And so uh, when other countries like China specifically got the virus first, uh, all of that supply uh, went, went to handle that. And there wasn't a lot coming off of uh, coming out of the manufacturing plants. And then, of course, you get countries that start playing games, not wanting to release uh, uh, this life-saving PPE back into to this country. And then we even complicated further that with the stuff that is in this country, uh, you had, you know, uh, distributors, vendors, brokers uh, selling that stuff to the highest bidder, uh, to foreign gun for, foreign government governments, uh, shipping it, exporting it uh, out of the country. Prices up? Oh, n- no question about that. I mean, uh, you know, the, these N95 masks are like a dollar, okay? They're usually like a dollar. These surgical masks are, are usually like 60 cents, 75 cents. I mean, I, I've gotten deals... Uh, pitched to me as as much as ten dollars on N95 masks. Now the market seems to be somewhere in the five to six dollar range. Uh, but it, it's the wild, wild west of medical sales. Uh, you know, obviously, I you know I wanted to raise the alarm bells. I I was telling you know I was talking to my folks internally, realizing that we were running a boiler room for PPE, something out of the Wolf of Wall Street. And I said we got to talk about this publicly because it can't just be be us. Uh, and, and it wasn't. Uh, and then obviously we saw, you know, the White House step in a couple of days later, uh, use the Production Act on 3M, them then come to the table and strike a deal, which really is all that matters. I mean, uh, and that, you know, if they're going to bring in 55 million masks a month from Asia. Some of that is already starting to come in and we're stopping exports. Uh, listen, we, we want to make sure that we're always, that we're trying to take care of the world. The United States plays an integral role uh, in doing so. It helps, obviously. 
uh, decrease famine and disease uh, in other countries, which when those things rise become our problem uh, anyway. Uh, but in this instance, right, we got to make sure that we're, we're taking care of our folks in our hospitals uh, and, and we're not doing things or allowing companies uh, to do things around the world to help their bottom line uh, rather than helping folks here first. And so, uh, you know, look, very early on in January and February when we weren't dealing with uh, COVID-19 like we are now, we did help the world. Uh, and that was the right thing uh, to do. Uh, and so, but, but I'm happy that, you know, we've stopped uh, that practice at the moment, uh, put a temporary pause on it to make sure that these uh, extremely important medical supplies uh, stay uh, in country uh, and, and that we're able to bring in uh, these materials from other countries. I got to tell you, Montel, I, I, I think there's going to be a sea change uh, going forward on, in manufacturing. Uh, I, you know, whether or not the federal government takes a role in that by helping these corporations uh, bring manufacturing uh, back to this country. But I really do believe we have uh, been exposed to a major national security issue. Uh, it's okay, I think, if your kids' toys that you buy at Target or Walmart are made in China. Uh, but, but, I, uh, but I do think now, you know, ventilators, uh, life, you know, prescription drugs, the fact that 90% of ingredients for prescription drugs are not made in this country, uh, I, I got to tell you, I think we need to figure out a, a better balance so that we can be more, su more self-sustainable uh, in the event uh, we wind up with something like this in the future. Do you think, though, that that message right there is getting through to some of our other politicians who are decision makers? Because it seems like to me that some of them are just, yeah, okay, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, and just paying lip service. And then six months from now, let's say that all of this kind of rears its ugly head and it slows down. And six months from now, we go back to business as usual. But that's really, we don't need to, to develop the, the factories here in the United States to provide us with the ingredients or the the parts for other things. Well, no, look, you bring up a good point, right? I mean, we, we, we turn the page on news stories here faster than any other country. There's no question about that. Uh, and so, you know, right now, this is the hot topic in, in six or eight months. Will we be talking about that? But, uh, you know, my, the Florida delegation, Democrats and Republicans have, have really been working together to make sure that they're doing everything they can uh, to, to make sure that the Division of Emergency Management and our residents, you know, get what we can, get our fair share so that we can get it to the front lines. But, but I talked to, putting my, my old hat on for a second, I mean, I talked to a lot of Democrats, I talked to a lot of Republicans, and, and while they come at it maybe from different positions, I think that there is a dramatic consensus that this is now a national security issue uh, and that we can't depend on the world uh, to manufacture things for us if if they need those things themselves. I mean, I t the line I've been telling everybody is that, look, you know, usually in a hurricane, we're competing against a couple of states, you know, the federal government uh, buying resources. And, and now we're not just competing against the whole country. I mean, we're competing against everybody but Antarctica. Uh, and, and so, you know, when, when, that, when that's going on, at the end of the day, you got to be able to focus on what you can produce in country. Uh, and the fact that we have, I think, to a further degree than everybody realized, maybe even myself, uh, that there are just some life-saving medical equipment, medical supplies, uh, medication, uh, that, that we are now, uh, we have outsourced that, U.S. companies have outsourced that, manufacturing them in other countries. Uh, that's something that's got to be examined. And it's not something that we need a dramatic shift on. I mean, let's be clear. We're very good at this country. We do one thing one day, and then all of a sudden, you know, we go to the opposite corner the other day, and we have an overreaction. We don't need to overreact. We just need to have a plan going forward 
that we are able to make sure that we can meet the needs of our citizens uh, without having to depend on other countries in the event you know, they have issues of their own. And so I just think it'll take a, a good coordinated strategy with U.S. companies at the table, federal government there as well, to make sure that we can make this stuff in our country again. Now, I hope that because, you know, when, when you take a look at when this comes not to an end, but when this slows down, the prices of things like, you know, the, the N95 masks will go back down. There'll be those that don't think that that's, you know, financially solid enough for them to want to start businesses to continue to build masks or make masks when the problem doesn't exist as prevalently, right? Yeah, so I mean, let's... No, there, there, there's no question about that. But that's why I think the federal government has a role to play. Uh, listen, you know, without, without getting too deep, right, there's positive negatives to capitalism. Uh, and, but if we want corporations, obviously, to bring their factories back uh, to, to this country, which will be an amazing jobs program, uh, you know, as we try to turn the page on COVID-19, we don't yet know where the economy is going to be. I mean, this could be an amazing jobs program where uh, this life-saving stuff is going to be made here. And it's not just for COVID-19. We now need to think beyond that. You know, what else is there that uh, fits into, you know, the life health safety category that, you know, we're making a dramatic percentage uh, overseas? Uh, and so uh, we, we, we got to look at that. I mean, having your iPhone not made here uh, isn't a life or death scenario, but ventilators can be. Right. And so I think there just needs to be a comprehensive conversation. And, and we, need to, we need to look at stuff from a national security interest. Uh, it isn't about bashing other countries. Uh, it, it's not about, you know, superiority. It, it's just about making sure that we can take care of our own. You know, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm neither do you. But, you know, I mean, I have, I've had some conversations in the last couple of days with some friends of mine who said, you know, that we are literally only one day away from this turning into a cataclysm in the sense that, if over the next couple of days, right now, I think most of the scientists, most of the doctors are saying that, you know, with warm weather, most of the time viruses like this will dissipate some. But they're looking at this virus and saying, hmm, this is a little strange. It may not dissipate with the warmer weather. This could mutate and mutate in a way that all the tests that we have right now become invalid. I mean, if you were to have to crystal ball this, are we at, at the same time dealing with this problem that we have right now, trying to anticipate what could be the next problem right on the horizon? No, Montel, it's a great, it's a great point. Uh, I mean, that's why all of those things that we've put in place weeks ago, even as the data started to get better, we, we've just, we've not, we've not changed our position where we've, we have this, we've stayed the course, uh, at, you know, steady as she goes. And so, you know, we're going to bring on 900 hospital beds, uh, in Miami-Dade County, 450 of those in the convention center, 50 of those being ICU beds. We're bringing on the Pan American Hospital back online, 200 beds there. And then we got a 250-bed uh, field hospital. All of these are acute facilities in Miami-Dade. And then I have four other facilities that are 250 beds each, one in Lee County, one in Palm Beach County, uh, one in Broward County that's online ready to go, and then one in, one in Jacksonville. Uh, and so if we had to bring up those facilities, we could. Then we have mobile units that we've procured, 15-bed ICU mobile units that you bring in uh, via an 18-wheeler that we could drop in a rural community. And so we've not pulled back on any of our plans that we put into motion a month ago, uh, even as the data gets better. Just because of that, that circumstance, 
uh, you describe. I mean, the thing that I'm planning for now is Montel. I mean, I hate to I hate to bring it up, but I'm planning for hurricane season, and I'm right. planning for her and I'm planning for hurricane season with COVID nineteen. Uh, and, and so they're talking, about this, they're talking about this could be one of the more severe hurricane seasons of the last five or six years. Yeah. Right? So they're, they're yeah. That's so right now the. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So the, right now, the early predictions are somewhere between 14 and 18 named storms. Very similar, actually, uh, to last year in which we, you know, dodged the bullet of, of Hurricane Dorian, which would have been, make no doubt about it, the most devastating hurricane ever hit the state of Florida. Uh, and we'd still probably be doing cleanup from Hurricane Dorian now in certain areas while we were dealing with COVID-19. So thank goodness that that did not happen. And so, you know, here, here are the questions, Montel, that we're planning around. And we have a planning cell right now that we took out of the EOC that is working specifically on this, on these topics. Do we use schools as shelters if they're still COVID-19 prevalent? How do we check people when they're coming into shelters? Uh, do we have a rapid test to do so? Uh, do we take their temperatures? If somebody does come to a shelter and they're positive for COVID-19, do I turn them away? Do I send them back, you know, basically on their own? Or do I bring them to a specific COVID-19 shelter? How do I do evacuations? Do I evacuate from a hot zone? Do I evacuate into a hot zone? Uh, and so all of these are things that we're looking at and drawing up plans and procedures, uh, you know, for that July, August, September, October timeframe uh, when we know we're entering, you know, the heart of hurricane season. I tell people that, you know, look, obviously there's a bigger chance when you have more storms, but Hurricane Andrew hit in one of the slowest years ever on record. Uh, and so it only takes one storm uh, to, to bring a disaster. And so, you know, we have, to, we have to be thinking about that here in Florida. That one storm could be that turn to the left or the right. You, were just, you just mentioned September, October. September, October, back to school. What are you thinking about right now? I know you're trying to plan this out. Again, it's fluid. Every day it changes. So let's say we hit our peak here in Florida, April 21st. We have four months before we have to start thinking about getting kids back in the classrooms. And then the weather starts to change and it gets cooler. And so we could have another spike of this. I mean, if you had the crystal ball, or not crystal ball, but maybe just think ahead. What are you thinking about the next five months in Florida will look like? Yeah, listen, obviously that, you know, that, that definitely seems to be the conversation du jour at the moment uh, as far as, you know, when, when can schools reopen? When can we get back to some semblance of life? And will there be a second wave of this in the fall? Uh, and, and the truth is, Montel, while, while, those, while the policymakers are, are having those discussions and, and I've weighed in with my opinion of the moment, I mean, I'm, I'm still – uh, really laser focused on uh, the peak of this on, on April 21st and, and then, you know, making sure that we have hospital capacity, you know, thereafter ventilator capacity, ICU capacity, you know, as I said, deaths are going to lag. And so, you know, we're going to have a lot of families in the state of Florida, uh, you know, losing family members. It's going to be very tough for them. You know, they're not going to be able to go to their funerals. They're not going to be able to, you know, go, you know, go see them in the hospital. And so it's, uh, you know, we, we got to get through that part uh, before I can start wrapping my brain around is, you know, how do we, you know, what is my guidance, uh, you know, on, on bringing stuff back online? How can we do that safely working with the Department of Health and the governor, obviously, on making those decisions? So, uh, you know, I, I, I think obviously those are, those are conversations to start having in May uh, on what those plans uh, would be like. I, I just think right now that that's all very premature. How are you, how are you dealing with right now, looking across the country, we're starting to see you know, this chasm between the haves, the have-nots, the under-deserved K-12 
communities, the minority communities, people of color, who seem to be, you know, more prone to the more adverse effect of this virus. How are you trying to right now deal with that in the middle of building a hospital and the convention center? I've had some people reach out to me from Europe uh, recently talking about an idea of even reaching out to airports. I mean, if we look at the, the airport right now, it's probably at about 80% capacity. So there are terminals in that airport that you could shift planes over to separate terminals and utilize an entire terminal if we needed to for space for a hospital. But, you know, the numbers in the disenfranchised communities seem to be growing. What are you doing specifically to, to address that? Well, I think the first thing is, is we got to be honest about the situation. Uh, which I think is extremely important, right? Uh, you know, in the state of, we're seeing those numbers nationally. Now, in the state of Florida, right now, thankfully, the, the data doesn't show that disparity. Uh, right, right now, we're seeing it among, uh, in African Americans and the black community, about 18, 18% of our deaths uh, are, are, in, are in the black community. Uh, and so that, that corresponds with the population, pretty much. Correct. So that, that corresponds very close to the population here in Florida. Obviously, some states are seeing that number in the 30% and higher. Now, that doesn't mean we can't trend that way. It just means as of today, we're not there. So, uh, you know, I had a, we had a call yesterday with, with the Black Caucus here in, in, in the state of Florida, all the representatives, all the senators, and obviously this was, this was a hot topic, and we get it. Uh, we also get, obviously, that, you know, in certain communities of color, right, there are underlying illnesses that make them more susceptible to, to COVID-19. And those are long systemic reasons of why those things exist. Uh, there should also be no surprise uh, to people out there that obviously uh, folks that come from a different socioeconomic background uh, and have different access uh, to health care, not that the test of COVID-19 isn't free or that the health care to COVID-19 isn't free, uh, but that the fact that they've not been getting good health care for years and years and years which may have exacerbated, obviously, these underlying health conditions, now makes them susceptible, more susceptible to COVID-19. And so we are trying to expand testing uh, in uh, more of our urban settings, uh, in our, our communities of color. Uh, obviously, you know, we have, you know, the Hispanic community uh, in Dade County. You have the Haitian community in Dade County. Uh, you have the Caribbean community. Uh, in Broward County. And so, you know, making sure that we're working with community leaders in those areas who are on the ground, you know, we, we have drive-through testing. It's very possible that, you know, in some communities, drive-through testing doesn't work. So we have to come up with, with other, uh, other ways to do that. We're, we're all, you know, talking right now. You've got to convince some of those leaders in those communities, like especially the last four or three, to the system off, to get some of the social influencers to stop this crazy messaging that somehow says people of color are more immune to this disease. This is really absolutely insane. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that's, you know, that's obviously not true. I've, I, I know those social influencers that you're, that you're, that you're talking about. Uh, and, and so, you know, look, I, I, I think all of those deniers, all of those conspiracy theorists early on, uh, you know, I, I think all of that now has been completely disproven. And so I, I don't spend a lot of my time on that. What I do try to spend my time on is trying to help those people uh, on the ground operationally. And so, you know, I, I do think you're going to see the state of Florida again, even though the data doesn't support it, we want to get ahead uh, of that potential issue. We want to make sure that uh, folks have access to testing. 
Uh, we have, like I said, a lot of multi-generational uh, living situations. Uh, we have obviously, you know, parents taking care of grandparents in the same home. Uh, we, we have, you know, grandkids uh, that, are, you know, are their caretaker uh, and, and, you know, have to see them on an everyday basis to make sure that they get food and their, and their medication. And so, uh, you know, we are trying to come up with programs to also make sure that we have a representative sample in our testing, in our testing data, uh, so that as we have these numbers, uh, that it makes sense because that we have a representative sample. And so, you know, in, in that, in the healthcare and in the testing, that's extremely important. The, the other phase to that, uh, uh, Montel, obviously, is that as unemployment numbers uh, tick up, there's going to be a tremendous amount of strain on our federal programs, such as, you know, the free and reduced lunch program, uh, the WIC program, the SNAP program, all of these feeding programs, Feeding Florida, you know, right now is seeing a 30% increase on the amount of people uh, they have to feed. You're seeing these lines miles long for people coming to pick up food. Uh, so that's something that here at the division we're extremely concerned about and we're working on, uh, you know, executing on plans that we've had in place, quite frankly, uh, from our from our hurricane planning, you know, to make sure that, you know, we do what we can as, again, a, a lagging, in the, a lagging uh, effect of this after the amount of cases from COVID-19 goes down, we could still see unemployment tick up and up and up. Uh, and so, you know, getting, you know, making sure that those, those checks get to those families to try to uh, help them get by is extremely important. Uh, but even beyond that, you know, making sure the Division of Emergency Management steps up and, and fills some gaps where they exist, uh, making sure people don't go hungry. Are you finding it as it, it, tough to be able to get things like food supplies as you have found it being tough to get PPE? I know somebody, somebody described you as kind of like the James Bond right now as you go around the, the world, literally physically trying to argue and battle and bid for protective equipment, but are we having the same issues when it comes to getting food and supplies for those who are in need? No, th thankfully we're not. Uh, you know, and, and, and thankfully, you know, between, uh, you know, the, in this state, you know, the Publixes and the Walmarts and the Cheney Brothers and the Cisco's, uh, you know, right now we're, we're seeing the food supply chain holding pretty well. I mean, obviously everyone knows the, the run on toilet paper and paper towels. And one day we'll have to figure out how that happened uh, and why. Um, but, but right now we're not, we're not seeing any supply chain issues uh, in food. Now, as potentially the numbers of the amount of people that may need food, food assistance increases, we're going to have to expand our ability to bring that food in. And so one of the things I know people are talking about is, is reaching out to the small business restaurants and the large restaurants and bringing them back online in a coordinated way. Uh, potentially to help feed. We have massive commercial catering kitchens here in the state uh, that could help, help help do so as well. And so there's all this is an all options strategy on the table because obviously, you know, we want to make sure we feed people and we put people back to work potentially uh, in, in the same way. And so, you know, look, that's going to be a lagging uh, effect of all of this. It's going to track with, with unemployment. Uh, and so obviously, you know, depending upon how long these mitigation measures have to go on to keep people safe and how long the economy has to be closed, you know, that, that could be a real coming, you know, major effect of this. And the governor has talked about that. The governor has specifically talked about, you know, what happens when you close the economy, uh, all the effects that come afterwards. So we have to be prepared for that. But Jay, I can't say thank you enough for being a participant today on Let's Be Bottle Montel and being as blunt as you've been, because I think people really need to hear this straight from the horse's mouth. And thank you so much for being here with us. Any last messages you want to share with our, our viewers and when it comes to what they should be doing right now? I mean, you, you heard from you know the president's press conference. He wants to try to get 
the economy up and going again by May 1st, yet we may not see the peak in Florida until April 21st, that would only give you nine days to get us back up and running. So that's not going to happen. So what would you say to the Floridians that are tuning in right now and what they should be anticipating? Yeah, I mean, what I would just tell people, frankly, is they got to stay the course. They got to continue social distancing. They got to continue the mitigation measures. Uh, you know, I, I don't want people to get a false sense of security just because we see the, the curve flattening. And, 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 and what I would say to people is think about the hurricane mentality, right? Uh, you know, the hurricane is barreling towards us, and now we've seen a slight jog away. Uh, but it's just a slight jog away from us. Uh, and so we got to continue to see if that jog continues away before we're out of harm's way. Uh, and we won't know that until we get through, you know, the, the middle of, of next week and the end of next week to see if that, that hurricane coming towards us, uh, if it does continue that, that turn away. And so I, I think right now we got to be vigilant. We got to stay the course. We got to continue our preparations. We got to continue to social distance, you know, folks uh, going to, uh, you know, for having Easter uh, on, on Sunday, we got to make sure, obviously, that, you know, as we declare religious activity uh, an essential service, because we want to make sure that people have that ability to pray, especially in these times, that we don't have mass gatherings, uh, that the CDC guidelines are still followed. And so uh, that's what I would tell people. We're not out of this yet. Uh, we're going to have some, you know, a lot of bad news next week uh, as the deaths, you know, lag the hospitalizations. Uh, and so that's what I just want people to focus on. And Monta, I want to thank you for, you know, all the issues you're always you know, advocating for, you know, I know, I know all, you know, you've got a very active Twitter uh, and I see you always advocating, advocating on behalf of a lot of people. So I appreciate that. And thank you so much for what you do, sir. Please, God bless you and your family. I hope you get a chance to see your sons again real soon and take care of yourself. We need you. Thanks, Montel. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, sir. Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.